Okay, so for this podcast, we are joined by Mike Brooks, who is the manager of the um, multimedia user experience and accessibility teams, as well as Sonia Woods and Matt Farley, who are both accessibility consultants. And um, I was really excited to talk to this team. Um, from an organizational standpoint, they, um, they provide accessibility and usability uh, consultations to our learning design teams. So that, that's a dedicated function. This is what they do all day, and they're really passionate about it. And I love talking to them and, uh, and you know, being enriched by the knowledge that they have um, about this space, not just from an accessibility standpoint, but how do we make um, intuitive and positive user experiences for all of our students, regardless of their whether or not they have any particular special needs or are just a very diverse audience. Um, and these are that that diversity is something that um, we aspire to always design for. Um, and, and this is what their passion is and they're marvelous partners um, for the whole design teams as we're pretty much doing any kind of project, whether that be a course design or some kind of uh, software development for custom interactive elements or courses um, and do a lot of consultation around the university. So their impact is really huge and um, and really important for, for Penn State and our students. Um, and I think that you'll enjoy hearing from them. Well, thank you all for taking the time to, to chat today. I think maybe we've got a couple of guests, which is sort of new for this uh, podcast series. We've mostly been one-on-one, so why don't we take a moment here to everybody introduce yourselves and, and real quick sort of what your what your role is within World Campus Learning Design. Um, I am Matt Farley. I am an accessibility consultant um, with a slight focus on doing accessibility testing for some of the more interactive components we use in our courses as well as some of the third-party tools that we use. My name is Sonia Woods. I'm an accessibility consultant and a training coordinator for our unit. So I coordinate training and provide resources to our design staff, our instructional designers, so that they know how to apply accessible practice in their day-to-day work. And then uh, we also review courses when we get students with disabilities in them to make sure there aren't any barriers that they're gonna encounter. Great, thanks. Uh, Mike Brooks. I'm the manager of our user experience, multimedia, and programming groups. Um, accessibility falls under user experience in this case as a subset. And, um, you know, really from my angle, I'm, I'm focused on helping Sonia and Matt in any way that they need to do their jobs, but also thinking about that larger strategic plan for um, what we're doing. Yeah, and I think we were just talking before the interview that we were trying to figure out what your title was because we've done some restructuring and I think that the, we can get into this during the interview, but I think that the, the structure and how you've been working to integrate the teams a little bit more is interesting and, and, and I think illustrative of this just not being about accessibility, but mm-hmm. more broadly about universal design and usability and sort of how we think holistically about inclusivity in the context of learning design. So, so so thank you, everybody, again, for, for taking the time. Um, I'm wondering, that the, this lesson is about inclusivity, which is, again, which is a broad concept. So I'm wondering, from all your perspectives, at a very high level, 
Um, what what does a term like that mean to you? I'm sure it's something that you guys think about a lot and have a particular perspective. So so what does inclusivity mean in the context of learning design and 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 why is why is it important for a new learning designer going into the field to be thinking about something something like inclusive inclusivity in, in all its aspects? So from my angle, um, you know, I, I kind of take two approaches to thinking about why this is important. And, and sometimes the audience is, really depends on what speaks to them. So I, I look at it as a business decision, um, as one angle. And the more important angle then comes with the moral responsibility that we have. So from the business decision angle, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the idea that we have an expanding population of users. Um, or a population of users who we have yet to tap into. And um, you think about aging adults and um, offering education to these adults or offering education to individuals who have some sort of uh, a barrier that is presented to them. And so, you know, the business decision to remove some of those barriers just opens us up for more of a customer base. Uh, from the more responsibility angle, Really, it's about providing equitable access to our population as a whole. Um, increasing the education in our society is just a thing that benefits everyone. And, and so to approach it from that angle, we like to provide as many people as many opportunities as we can. Yeah, you, you brought up the, the sort of expanding population, and I think it's important to note that World Campus serves any higher education institution serves a, a, a diverse population particularly with world campus we have global reach so you're talking about literally your population is literally anybody in the entire planet potentially right. yeah so, and, and so you know we talk about barriers that. And, and that the <laughs> barriers can be many things so I, I leave it sort of general because yeah. it can include english as a second language it can include right you know, any number of disabilities, um, but it, it, it can also simply include things like access to high bandwidth internet. So military students overseas, uh, those sorts of things. Yeah, interesting. What do, what do you think, guys? Yeah, I would agree with that. I just, I love the mission of distance and online education to make a college education, and in our case, a Penn State education available to more people. So I feel like as uh, course designers, we're obligated to consider the diversity of our students mm -hmm. and to develop that empathy, to think about how do we design for people who are different from ourselves, to give them options and choice and flexibility in how they access content and how they um, respond and complete assignments. To, because um, I think creating an educational space with a lot of different types of people enriches the learning environment for everyone because all the students can learn from each other. I really like that word empathy and I feel like if there's one thing that a learning designer should like walk away from learning from 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 you guys today is like come at every design that you do with a certain degree of, of empathy like understand who your audience is and and not and not just from like a clinical sort of standpoint, but like empathize with what their special situation is, and 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 you know factor that into how you do design. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, when I tell people about my job who aren't familiar with it, it's very easy for me to say I make courses accessible for people who might have a visual or a hearing impairment. 
but overall that's still a very low population of our students so we're actually doing a lot more than that um, whether it's for someone who has some sort of mobility impairment or just their age or their location or whatever the case may be um, and we'll get into this a little bit when we talk about universal design but as far as inclusivity and in course design it's just about thinking of ways you can make everything from the course content to the assignments um, available to everyone regardless of any sort of barrier they may or may not have in front of them. All right, so you mentioned we've mentioned universal design a couple times here in accessibility and, and briefly usability. For the uninitiated walking into this and, and for a designer maybe coming into a course design situation where they do have the opportunity to work with people in your position, I think it's probably useful to differentiate or define some, some terms. So I wonder if you could unpack a couple for me or and add any to the list that you think are important to understand. So what is accessibility? What is usability? And what is universal design? And, and sort of what are the differences between those things? Because they, they can be used interchangeably by people who don't know better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they're different things. Well, I have some formal definitions yeah. I can throw out at this point. Um, I would define accessibility is um, everyone, regardless of ability, has equal access to content. Usability is how easy it is for an individual to learn and use a particular object or system. And universal design unites both of those ideas. The, the famous quote related to universal design is that it's the design of products and environments to be usable by all people to the greatest extent possible without the need for adaptation or specialized design. And that idea originates in the built environment. Um, when you apply it to education, it's called universal design for learning. Very good. Yeah, and it really it's, like I was saying with the intro, accessibility to me is a subset of usability. Um, usability is a general cons construct of, as uh, Sonia said, how easy something is to use. Um, so when you think about design in general, and it can be design of, of anything, uh, think about a bicycle. I think one of the common um, examples given it is really a bicycle. And you, you have an image in your mind when you think about a bicycle. It's got two wheels, you've got handlebars, you've got the pedals. Um, but dissect that visual and maybe take those pedals and stick them up on the front wheels so that you don't have a chain operating the back wheels, just stick it on the front wheels. So it's still functional. You could still technically do it, but it would be awkward. It, it wouldn't be easy. Um, so that is, you know, to make it usable is to rethink that design so that everything's within easy reach. Um, to further make it universal, you offer flexibility. Um, so you think about a child learning to ride a bicycle. You can add training wheels. It's got, um, you know, attachment points for training wheels that you can make it adapt to each user um, at their choosing. There's a really great book that I read once, and you get, you probably have read this as well, Design of Everyday Things mm -hmm. by Donald Norman. Yep. Mm -hmm. And it, some of the examples that he lists in that book are really interesting, but also infuriating, and probably things that, they're everyday things that he talks about. So like doors on office buildings where you can't tell if they open in or out, or like where the handle does gives you no indication of how to open the door, like simple things like doors. You should just be able to walk up to a door and be able to know how to open it. Yeah, it, just by seeing it should afford right. how it's going to operate to you. Um, 
Yeah, that, I agree. I, I would recommend that as a read for any of your students as it will ruin the sight of doors for them forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I want to like go talk to management every time I walk up to an office building and I find that. But, uh, but, it, but it does, it's a good metaphor and it translates, I think it translates pretty easily into learning design. Like you don't want the student loading up an online course and not knowing which way to open the door. Like it mm-hmm. should be completely apparent to them to regardless of what device they're using or what type of computer or any special abilities that they have, like it should be completely obvious what to do next. And, and it, often we put a million barriers up in front of the students, which, which is why you guys are, <laughs> are so valuable. <laughs> That's why um, we're here. <laughs> One of the misconceptions, I think, people don't like the term universal design because it implies mm. that you're designing something that out of the box is going to work for absolutely everybody in every situation, which feels impossible. Uh-huh. And so it's like we make this impossible and then we don't even try to do it. Which is why I like that the definition I gave before mm-hmm. was the widest number of people possible. So you're you're lessening the need for somebody like me or Matt to have to come in and, and change things or um, to create extra work later. You're making it work better for everybody. It's really clear that you know which way you know you're, you're supposed to pull the door or push it. Yeah. You know that you don't have to think about that. Mm-hmm. And then um, it's, but there's always a need, some need for accommodation for certain people because you can't predict every possible situation. Yeah, I remember we had a student with both a visual and a hearing impairment a few semesters ago, and we just don't have the resources to plan for that case for every single Mm -hmm. aspect of a course. But if you're employing some of these universal design strategies, you're probably going to be... prepared for over 90% or more of the student population. And then when you do get those rare cases, you actually have the time to tackle and focus on those things rather than worry about the wider population of students that you've already kind of accounted for. Yeah, I think this is a good segue into a question I had about processes. Maybe we can start with accommodations because it's an important, in terms of the way that you all do your jobs in an ideal circumstances, and we were talking before the interview about um, integrating concepts of usability and universal design throughout the design process, like right from the beginning, so that you're not doing mm-hmm. remediation after the fact. But can you talk about that in terms of like how you function in an ideal circumstance in a consultative manner early on versus accommodations and what that looks like? How do they come in? How do you deal with them? And kind of maybe differentiate the, those two things. Um, Well, the big difference is if we find out about a a student in a course, um, once we get their notification that they have an accommodation, in those cases, it's usually the beginning of the semester, so we're rushing a little bit because we're finding about all the students at once. Whereas before, if if a design team can meet with us and we're kind of planning the course together before we even know of any specific student, that's when some of those universal design strategies come in because... We're planning for multiple eventualities rather than trying to retroactively go back and fix things for one individual. So what what is, what is defined for me an accommodation? That might be a, a new term for some people. So an accommodation um, basically is an individualized plan for a student. 
Um, so students will come in, and, and most universities, as well as our university, have a uh, group of specialists who do intakes with students to understand, um, first of all, what you know, any any documentation that they currently have to bring, and and what they do is they develop a personalized plan for that student to meet their needs, um, and so that plan is really the accommodation. So we don't focus on the disability that a student might have or um, any of those things. We focus on what that means to their needs for coursework. Uh, so that's, you know, when we, when we talk about accommodation, it's really that plan. Um, so that plan is very high level. It's very general. It talks uh, about those generalities for, for the student's needs, such as um, if it's a blind individual, it's not going to outline that they are blind, it's just going to outline that um, a screen reader needs to be able to read all of the course content or, um, you know, and it, it says it even more general than that. But we take that then on our team and look at our courses from that lens. And so, you know, as Matt was saying, if we can do that work up front in the planning of a course design and development, we have implied some of the universal design principles and we can better adapt to these situations. So, you know, I go back to the, you know, you have a bike and you put training wheels on it. Um, we can, we have attachment points already pre-planned for those training wheels. Yeah. And, and so every student is really an individual. Um, every student's needs vary slightly. So um, student A who has a vision impairment is not equal to student B who has a uh, vision impairment. Uh, some have low vision, some are blind uh, from birth and don't have any experience with uh, or, or have more experience with screen reading software because they grew up with it. Others are blind from other life events and are new to be introduced to the technology oh, wow. that enables them. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really an individualized plan. So they could be starting college as a sighted individual and then lose their sight yeah. halfway through? For sure. Wow. So some pretty fun, uh, pretty foundationally like important stuff that you guys are doing. So let's, okay, so let's unpack this a little bit more because I think we've talked around it a little bit, but what does, what is the operational, operationally, what does this look like in terms of how you guys do your job on a day-to-day -day basis? And we talked a little bit about consultations and defined accommodations. So what, what do you do? What tools do you use? What does an evaluation look like to determine if something's accessible? Just, just tell me all about what you guys do. So starting from the <laughs> consulting process, um, well, I'll, I'll let Matt and Sonia handle the, the details of this um, and, and certainly the tools that they use. But from the process of developing a course and when we bring in a course that we know we're going to have on a development cycle, we start scheduling some of those um, consultations so that whenever we have content from the subject matter experts coming in, we can take a look at that content and do a general consult um, to try to give them advice, um, maybe some suggestions for changes of how things can be set up in a more um, flexible way. So really meeting those universal design principles so that on the onset they're creating based off of our suggestions, hopefully lesson one or a co first couple of lessons that can cover some things so that um, the, the team can take a look at those lessons, provide some more concrete details, and those that initial consult with those concrete 
details from the review of lesson one can be carried through the course then. It's that upfront work that really saves some time down the road. And I'll, I'll let you get into more of the specifics. Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, in terms of what do people ask us in the course design phase, mm -hmm. um, some of that might be consulting on assignment, how assignments are designed. So, for example, I worked on a course where the course author's idea was all the students would use a particular very visual calendaring tool, and to, they were trying to teach students how to organize themselves. And so they would use this calendaring, calendaring tool, and they'd take a screenshot as the deliverable of what they would submit for the assignment. And the designer talked with me and said, this sounds like it might not work for some students, which was true. Mm -hmm. So um, I worked with him to redesign the assignment so that it was based on Excel. Our disability uh, specialist, Terry Watson, actually teaches stu his students how to organize themselves. And so he had developed a template in Excel that had co color coding, but was also accessible for someone using a screen reader. So it kind of met all, the, all of those needs. And we built that assignment out. If a student wanted to use the other tool and take a screenshot, they could still do that. So that's that idea of providing options. So you didn't, we wanted this particular course to be set up so we didn't have to do any accommodation work later. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of what happens up front, or it might be how we present content. So we, I talked to someone who wanted to present content as PowerPoint slides. Uh, the slides were coming from a third-party organization and were part of, were presented, you know, as part of a live presentation. So I talked to her about why she wanted to use PowerPoint slides when translating it to the online environment, and she just liked how the content was chunked up mm -hmm. in smaller pieces, which is a really good design strategy, but PowerPoint slides don't work as well when you take, when you um, separate them from the spoken mm -hmm. piece. <laughs> and so as we talked through it, she decided to move that content into the course pages and add um, good images. Yeah, I, I think that that's, it's a good example of making sure that the content is accessible, first of all, because the PowerPoints probably weren't terribly accessible, but then also as a general learning strategy, like this is going to benefit all learners, regardless of their ability. Like it's yeah. it's helping a designer understand a generally useful well, strategy. Well, part of her goal was saving time because she already yeah. had this content. Right. So when I said, well, there's a, there's some work to be done to make those PowerPoint slides accessible, she realized then that time would be better spent translating that content. Yeah, very good. We're we're also often involved in testing third party tools before they before Penn State even signs a contract with them and they end up in our courses. So we are actually trained in using screen readers like JAWS. So even though we're ourselves, we are not visually impaired, we kind of know how to use those tools and how a student who is, has a visual impairment would be using that to interact with a specific tool. So we have a whole series of processes we go through by testing them with this different types of assistive technology. And then we can actually say to the vendor, you know, A, B, and C about your tool is not going to work for these particular students. And there might either be a roadmap where they're going to fix some of those things, or we can develop uh, what we call an alternate access plan ahead of time mm -hmm. to say, if a student who has a hearing impairment is using this tool, um, they might need to have an assignment altered in a slight way for it to work with them. And we have all that information ahead of time, so we're not 
um, kind of shocked when we find a student in that course with a tool that's not completely accessible to them. Yeah, and sometimes that alternate plan is the student can use a different tool. Yeah, that's uh, to get back to the sort of accommodation point. Sometimes, uh, and, and to your point about universal design and not trying to design for 100% of the possible audiences, but to, to make certain concessions because you know that you might mm -hmm. do accommodations um, l later on. Yeah, like sometimes we'll, the designer or the instructor will say, we want the student to use this specific tool because this is what they're going to use in that industry. So it makes sense for them to learn that. But they might just say, I'm using this project planning tool because that's what's available to us for no particular reason. As long as the end result's the same, is it okay if a student uses a different tool that they have that they already know works for them as long as right. they can produce the same type of result? Yeah, so you're not going to go back and redesign the entire course because one student needs an accommodation. You're going to come up with an alternative strategy, which is time-intensive yeah. mm -hmm. for sure, but it's, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I'm kind of curious when you say you know how to use screen readers and, and you're a sighted person, for example, um, do you you know, like open up a course and turn your monitor off or do you simulate the situation that the, that student would be in? So how does that, what does that look like? No, we don't usually go that far. Um, we just know the type of controls needed to navigate to different elements on the page. And we know when you're hitting certain things on the page, I don't know if it would be helpful to define more what a screen reader is, sure. but it's basically a tool that it's not only going to read the text on a web page, it's also going to read all the semantic markup as such as headings. It's going to read any alternate text that's attached to images. So things that are in the code that visually you're not seeing on the page, but it allows a student who has a visual impairment to navigate the page and kind of take in all the information there, whether it's visual or text, because it's reading all that um, additional information that's coded in to it. So we know what we need to do to navigate a page and make sure a screen reader is reading all those elements. So if we get to an image or some sort of graphic, and the screen reader doesn't respond to that, that means it's probably missing alternative text or something like that. And we know to um, go in and make sure that's added. Yeah, and testing, it's, kind of, it's important for us to know what the screen reader is reading and what it's not reading. So if there's visual information uh -huh. we're getting from yeah. something, a dialogue box pops up yeah. or something, or a tool tip or whatever, right. and that's not announced, then we can make a note of that. But we also work very closely with another team at Penn State that employs people who are blind right. because, some, because that perspective is so important. So sometimes we will send things to them and, and they can verify what we think is, is true about something. Yeah, that seems like that would be pretty essential. Yeah, I, I would, when I started using a screen reader myself in, into this field, um, I actually did turn my monitor off. I would I would cover it up. I would um, I, I had to put my mouse in a drawer because natural tendency was to mm -hmm. grab for the mouse or go mm -hmm. for a trackpad when using these. And, and whenever you're thinking about a user that can't use those visual point and clicks that they're using the keyboard only, um, I created an environment to force myself into that environment. Uh, I did quickly find that um, where that was lacking is exactly in the areas that Sony had defined. Um, the idea that I wasn't sure what I was missing. So to be able to see what you're supposed to, the intended um, purpose of all of the elements of the page or all of the elements of the course are for and, and what's not there is, is a really important aspect of this. So when we work with our partners, oftentimes we get really great feedback on what works well, what doesn't work. 
but at times we don't get feedback on elements at all. And, you know, we have, for a while, we were wondering about some of those elements, but, and, and we realized they're not even aware they're available. Mm-hmm. And so that's, it, it's important to combine multiple perspectives. Yeah. Um, so along those lines, can you talk about personas and sort of how, how that guides some of this? Because I think that that's an interesting practice. Um, Our resident persona expert. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Matt and I worked with Terry Watson, our disability specialist, and Anita Collier-Graham, who's our manager of access, and Ritu Jayakar from marketing. The five of us spent about eight months um, developing data-based personas of students with disabilities. So we have seven personas. that we use, and we use them in training to help people understand the different situations that people are in and the different limitations, and even what are what are the types of disabilities students mm-hmm. might have. So Jenna is our persona who has ADHD, and Sarah has a, is our persona with uh, depression and anxiety. And those are things pe- that are very, very common in our student population but often not talked about when you're talking about like te- technical web accessibility. Whereas, you know, when we're talking about something working with something like a screen reader, mm-hmm. we know we have to mark up headings and make meaningful link text. But what does it mean if some of our students have uh, attention deficit? Or what about traumatic brain injury? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, so, so all of our personas have uh, lists of what works best for them and what frustrates them. And our hope is people can use those things to kind of inform their work. And yeah. we use them in training. So mm-hmm. people can understand when you use good heading structure on a page, you're helping all kinds of people, not just people using screen readers. Yeah, I think the point about ADHD or other kind of sort of emotional uh, issues that we need to account for, that, that actually came up in a, a conversation we recently had about our... Um, about our online proctoring solution, that that uh, there are students that a having a proctor stand in front of them while they're, or even virtually being in front of them while they're taking a test can cause a lot of anxiety, mm-hmm. um, or if they have ADHD, ADHD just taking a long exam all at once is really problematic. So that exam needs to be broken up. So these things that once. The personas are really helpful in, in getting you to think about scenarios that you probably, if unless you personally dealt with it, you probably wouldn't think about that in the mm-hmm. course of design, and it really opens up a whole sort of different avenue for. And you know, we've had more students that need their exams split into two parts, yeah. which is very easy to do in a resident setting, and much more complicated when you're talking about online. So then, how does that inform? how you would design the exam in the first place. Yeah, very interesting. And actually our personas are available publicly, so if anyone's interested in checking out of them, they're at uh, sites.psu.edu slash personas. So um, you can see all of them on that website. Yeah, cool, and I'll include a link to that somewhere. By the way, for my part, I I am doing transcripts for all all of these podcasts. I did have a question for you, Sonia, because you mentioned it before we met was... um, there, there, it's one thing to do transcriptions for audio content. You need to make sure that you have that text, and it's going to be much more accessible for screen readers. Um, but you mentioned the 
audio like descriptions or maybe it was you that mentioned that can you talk about that a little bit like you think that you're going you're doing what's sufficient doing the transcription but you need to go one step mm. really further than that yeah so we uh, the terminology around audio description is very common um, however some of the other terminology that we use is a little bit of a hybrid so audio descriptions um, are the visual things happening within a movie that um, are not uh, are not included via either the dialogue or mm -hmm. via sounds. Mm -hmm. So you think about, um, you know, I, I kind of I look at music in movies, and music adds a tone to movies that you don't necessarily just get from the dialogue. Um, the same thing can be said of the visual cues. So you have some famous scenes in certain movies. Um, you know, Psycho is one of those movies mm -hmm. where you have that famous shower scene where you see the shadow on the shower curtain and everything. Yeah, it, um, it offers a um, tone to the movie, but also really important context for what's going to happen. Um, I have seen that scene without any of the visual um, visual cues oh, wow. or anything. That's got to be bizarre. And it is. It's, it's a lot of... Um, you know, music and noises and screaming, but uh -huh. there's, you don't know, you know, yeah. something bad's happening, but you don't know what. So the audio description is like dark music. Or yeah. Something like that, yeah. Or and so it doesn't music. capture yeah. it as right. well as, um, you know, the full range of experiences happening. You think of like 4D cinema that's adding smells into the whole mix of things, which, uh, you know, I'm not sure if I'd want to experience <laughs> myself, but uh, it, it, it's trying to immerse you into it. Sure. Um, so we're, we're trying to recreate as much as we can with things like audio descriptions, where it's doing descriptions of the visual cues and fitting it in between dialogue. Um, it's very difficult to do in some cases, but when we're talking about course content, bringing that back to uh, what we do, sometimes we will have um, instructors writing out math formulas on a whiteboard. And so we could audio describe that, but what's more useful is potentially to enhance the transcript. And so this is where we introduce, at least in our realm, the enhanced transcript language, mm -hmm. which means that we take that math formula off the screen and we create it using MathML so that it is a semantic markup. What that allows a user to do, if it's a screen reader user, it allows them to read the transcript, step through the formula, they have control of going through that formula um, via the keyboard instead of like rewinding a video, um, trying to listen to it again. They have a little bit more control over that and it's all inclusive within the transcript itself. Yeah, so MathML is a, is a standard. Yeah, just like HTML is a markup language, uh, MathML is also a uh, standard markup language. There's ChemML, um, mm -hmm. some more basic ones. Um, Basically, we try to design with MathML because it's the most widely supported in terms of users, ease of use, browser support. Um, yeah, that, that's really interesting. I, I'm wondering now, it's that we've kind of defined the space quite a bit. I'm wondering, and, and we spend a lot of effort getting this right and being proactive about these things. Famously, Penn State had some legal troubles from the National Federation for the Blind. I believe that was regarding, there was a couple of different things that they cited and you guys can expand on this. I know one of them was some, some things inside physical classrooms that weren't accessible um, and, and there were some issues with websites. But I'm wondering if you could expand on that one as, 
a place where we as an institution got some things wrong and then also maybe where people have gotten this right notable examples of, of both of those things so start with Penn State yeah so um, Penn State uh, named in this were a couple of the marketing websites um, our LMS at the time learning management system at the time uh, was also named in that uh, we have since switched over to a more accessible option. ATMs were another one. Uh, oh. So our, our bank partner with the university, uh, their ATMs didn't have you know the plugins for getting some oh. audio via oh. headphones or some of the braille in there. So that was part of the complaint. But we really we took that complaint and applied it as widely as we possibly could. Um, so that we could take a focus on our course content as well as some of the um, deeper content within our marketing websites even. Mm -hmm. So the, a group of individuals got together to, to tackle that and really rethink the way that we were doing the, um, everything at the university around accessibility, including training, um, including the way we develop content and the way that we provide some oversight and some help. Uh, so we had a tool that would do some scanning so that we could get reports back on the um, it quoted it as health of the website, uh, although that, that number caused some anxiety. So it really the tool was meant so that we could disseminate information about people's websites and where they can improve, um, less so of a, you know, pointing fingers or any of that. Um, so those efforts really came together to help um, kickstart uh, a culture of inclusivity within our at least electronic design. Uh, some of the classroom responses were to add uh, braille to this display, touch display, uh, or um, I'm sorry, physical buttons on the mm -hmm. display. So for touch display, we worked with some of our vendors to get some audio cues built into some, um, those those elements as well. But um, you know, I, I don't know if the Penn State context. If you want to talk a little bit more within where we've grown, I th I think we're doing well here at Penn State, and part of that is because we have teams. Like I mentioned, Anita mm -hmm. Collier-Graham is our manager of access. She pulls together a team of people from all different units at World Campus that meet every month, and, and um, we work together very closely to support each other's efforts, and I think that's key. So we have a lot of good communication lines going on, a lot of cooperation happening behind the scenes that helps make a great experience for our students. Mm -hmm. And I know that we, we had one of our students here got a degree in IST, and her advisor, Terry Watson, recommended her get a master's in a different institution, and she left and came back because they weren't able to accommodate her the way we had here. Wow. So that's a I thought that was a good story. And mm -hmm. we've had people who are completely blind get software engineering degrees and do some things you wouldn't expect would even be possible. That's awesome. What I know that there were, maybe you can correct me on the facts about this one, but there was a case regarding open educational resources recently with MIT or Berkeley? Harvard, possibly. Well, MIT, There's Harvard, a, Berkeley. Yeah. Yeah. Harvard, <laughs> Berkeley. Okay. So, yeah, and they had a lot of, they had a lot of, open educational resources online and a lot of it wasn't accessible and their response to the cases that were brought against them was to just pull it all That's what down. Berkeley did. That was they Berkeley, had a lot yeah. of um, open access materials that mm -hmm. were video 
and they weren't captioned, and so and it would have been a very expensive. It would to have do been it. expensive to caption, so they took them down. I believe a lot of it was student-generated content as well, so it wasn't necessarily things the university was putting up there, but they were allowing students to submit videos and then post them on their public sites, which was the issue. But it, it was a big marketing issue for them as well because in that community when we're talking about opening opening up access for everybody uh you know it's maybe not a population that all universities do consider because it's either you know invisible disabilities or it's a low percentage of the population Um, but that population is a vocal population Mm -hmm. who do see themselves as a community and talk to one another. And so whenever Berkeley decided to just, instead of accommodating and making things accessible, pull their content, there was a pretty big backlash in that area. Um, They had to sense kind of like backpedal and say, we're only pulling it for now so that we can come up with a plan to offer it accessibly. Um, MIT and Harvard, they were named for their um, edX platform and some of the stuff they were offering through their partnership on that open educational resource and they went full in on improvements. So they didn't pull any content. Um, they decided that it was important and that they were going to move forward and try to make as many concessions as they possibly could to, to make the content accessible. Um, and to come back, you know, at, at the, using Berkeley's business case, it was expensive right. to go backwards and yep. make things <clears throat> accessible. Um, Accessibility is not necessarily free. However, if you do plan for it, uh, it is far cheaper. And that is a statement that's really hard to quantify. So uh, we're currently working within our group right now to try to create the um, business case for accessibility. Sonia's done a lot of work in this area, creating a document to really talk about business case for accessibility. And we're, we're starting to gather some numbers that we're hoping to share with you to be able to say this is how much it's X effort in hours for us to do this work when we're consulting up front uh, for the whole course scope versus um, having a course come in that's strictly a review after it's been created and the amount of effort in hours because um, we, we can, that's a tangible numbers that we can associate to a budget to create these things or, or make them accessible after the fact. We know from our experience that it's a much higher number after the fact. Mm-hmm. So we want to be able to quantify that. And it's tough because, I mean, we're getting more into virtual reality and simulations and things like that. And we never want to be the people to say we shouldn't do these things. We always want to innovate and introduce new things into our courses. So it's it takes more time and, you know, a little bit of creativity to figure out how to make some of those things accessible. But it's definitely worth doing um, as we get these new innovations in our courses. Yeah, I think that that's a really good example to, to end on because there's. This is, we haven't figured out all the solutions, and as we introduce new uh, pedagogical strategies, we have to, like you said, be creative about this. And one of the things that we thought about with the immersive environments, those VR environments, was you were talking about audio descriptions, like something that a student can put that headset on and actually get a really interesting immersive environment because there is spatial audio, so there's things that we can do with audio cues to say, you know, look over here, look to your right. They can't, they're not actually looking. I probably wouldn't use those words, but but turn your head to the right because the thing that you should be focusing on is over here and maybe some 
some cues because the headset knows which which direction you're you're looking. So it, it could if there is like a pop up informational box that you can di- you can audibly direct the user's attention to those mm-hmm. things. So it's like mm-hmm. we would have never I've never would have never thought about that as a strategy. But there's things you can do to make even something a virtual or maybe you have a physical disability where you can't physically wear the headset, and in that case you can still access yeah. the 360 degree video and move around back, on yeah. your uh, computer. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and even you know, going one step further, when we talked about that alternate access plan, um, planning ahead for these things, you might realize that that virtual environment, while it adds a great deal of interactivity and immersiveness and, and helps with learning for 90% of our users, 95% of the users, um, if you're adding audio descriptions to it to supplement that in immersion, that mm-hmm. experience, uh, it's maybe not the best experience for everybody. So you have those al- alternate plans. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think in that in that case, and a lot of the stuff that we've been doing, we, we actually scripted out the entire VR simulation. So we've got right from the start, because we did good planning and met mm-hmm. with you guys at the start of it, had an entirely different way to access this content mm-hmm. we right, just have right a, from a the start. A text version, if that's if that's what you need, you can just get the text transcript of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was it. I think that was a good example to end on. Um, thank you guys all for your for your time. Um, I'll share some of the links that you pointed out in the in the show notes that, that I appreciate it. It's really good information. Thank you. Great. Thank, thank you. you.